0: Hi everyone, this is Martin Willis and welcome to the Antique Auction Forum for episode number 125 with Dan Horan. Today's episode is on men's wristwatches. You can follow us on Twitter or you can like us on Facebook. Those icons are right on our website. If you'd like to contact me, that's info at antiqueauctionforum.com. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm in Wyndham, New Hampshire with Dan Horan. How are you, Dan? Good, thank you. And this is the day before the end of the world, so uh, hopefully a few people will listen to this and it's kind of fitting we're uh, talking about clocks
1: or watches. Yeah, it's. it's uh,
0: I guess the time is now. Yeah, all right, right. <laughs> uh, so today we're going to be talking about Mostly men's, but we can talk about women's wristwatches. Basically, uh, the one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this is I noticed that it seems to be one of the strong
1: sellers. Yes, uh, th- their secondhand value is holding up. I, I think uh, that men have had less and less uh, opportunity for style or, or flair in their dress, and uh, you know, a, a lot of blogs talk about that the wristwatch is the last remaining piece of jewelry for for a successful male to, to flaunt himself.
0: Oh, is that right? What got you interested in watches in the, in the beginning? Uh,
1: I went to uh, school as a, a chemical engineer. Uh, I was at University of New Hampshire for, from 1995 through 2001. And uh, during my uh, term there, I, uh, I began work for my aunt and uncle at Jones and Horan auction team. Uh, mm. And they are uh, uh, one of the world's leading auctioneers of uh, vintage watches, pocket watches, and wrist watches. Um, I, I brought a, uh, uh, some modern skills to their kind of old Yankee type auction house. Now, where are they located? They're in Goffstown, New Hampshire. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So I worked for them for 10 years, uh, but I started in college during my summer breaks. They hired me full time afterwards, and I've never worked a day in the field of chemical engineering. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you have a degree, which is nice. Yes, and,
1: and it kind of ties into the the engineering uh, kind of mindset. Very much ties into the, the to the complicated and, and very technical aspects of clocks and watches.
0: Do you think you're happier doing this than you would have? I'm just side question.
1: Yeah, the the other uh, the other opportunity it presented to me, uh, besides you know having some. Technical fascination for me was that uh, I was very much interested in working in a small business environment and entrepreneurial spirit. I guess uh-huh. so. Jones market. and Horan um, f- filled the niche in the market uh, for American pocket watches. Oh, uh-huh. um, um, uh, the big auction houses, Christie's, Sotheby's, and Antiquorum, which pr- provide services to the very high end, you know, wrist watch market mainly, and, and a few pocket watches. Uh, they, they are unwilling to handle American pocket watches, which has a, a, a very enthusiastic uh, collector uh, collector group and, uh, of thousands of people involved actively in the country. And there was no real outlet, uh, auction, wholesale outlet for their, for their goods. And uh, my aunt and uncle were involved in country furniture auctions, and they got a big watch consignment in the early 90s. And uh, we just, we couldn't, we, we couldn't say no. We just, we, uh, more and more people would come to us for, for pocket, American pocket watch consignments. And then, of course, you build a reputation on uh, American pocket watches. We started handling European pocket watches, you know, and then the wrist watches and the, mm-hmm. the Rolexes and the Patek Philippe watches. They all, they start to trickle in. And then, you know, pretty soon we were, we were known as one of the probably five biggest auction houses in the country for, for watches of all kinds uh-huh. and yeah. now what do you do these days uh i work for i'm partners at ro schmidt fine arts uh he uh my partner robert schmidt and i he, the company was he founded the company it's named after him uh we formed a partnership in 2009 and um he was he was one of the five biggest auction houses in the country for american clocks mm-hmm. and uh, I, I dissolved my uh, relationship with my aunt and uncle business wise and uh bob uh needed uh, a younger partner and uh, I was especially a perfect fit because I could bring the watch expertise yeah. to his clock auctions and so now we 're about uh we 're about sixty percent clocks and forty uh, percent watches so we've we've we 've expanded our 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 bread and butter uh offering and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's talk about um the
0: brands uh you just mentioned paddock philippe which i consider one of the very finest watches that you can get am i up there is that uh are there some that are actually more desirable
1: uh no paddock philippe is uh far and away the most desirable and expensive watch you can own uh you know there of course there are different models and brands and there are some rolexes and some you know movados even and some uh long that are more expensive than a specific Patek watch. But in general, the Patek Philippe is considered the, the foremost brand among wristwatches and pocket watches.
0: Now, have you... Uh, right, I've, I've seen some pocket watches do very, very well. Uh, do you happen to know what the, the record price
1: is for... The record price for uh, any watch uh, is a Patek Philippe uh, pocket watch, in fact. Uh-huh. It's uh, called the Graves Super Complication. And it was made for, uh, Henry Graves, uh, in the, I think the 1920s, hmm. um, he was in a, he was in a race with, uh, uh, James Packard oh, yeah. uh, to, uh, and they were each, uh, privately funding, uh, different watch companies, but mainly Paddock to build more and more complicated watches. And, um, the Packard collection was recently sold through Sotheby's and they, uh, they realized very good prices on his collection. But, but back to the grave super complication, it was sold for 11 million in 1999. Oh my goodness. And, uh, you know, a, a big hunk of a pocket watch, 24 complications. Uh, and, uh, it it's still i think the most complicated watch Would you say 24 wrist. complications can you be more specific yeah the complications include on a on a watch which can which includes wristwatches that the the complications have seamlessly transitioned from pocket watches to to uh wristwatches most of them were designed for pocket watches but it's merely a matter of miniaturizing those complications to make them available in a wrist watch you know the most common complications include uh calendars, mm-hmm. uh, including day, date, and month, year even, yep. uh, moon phase, uh, which will tell you the f- whatever phase the moon is in, in the night sky, uh, chronograph, which is a stopwatch, uh, repeater, uh, that's a, a technical horological term or, or, or watch and timekeeping term that... Uh, to indicate a striking watch, mm-hmm. and that will uh, bang out the hours and the quarter hours, and possibly even the minutes. And it's almost like a code that that's done in, right? Yeah, uh, it's like a grandfather clock basis, but uh, to, to uh, the, the repeaters were created uh, so people could tell time at in night, the dark, yeah, before electric light. Right. So yeah. they're they're an invention of several hundred years, mm-hmm. uh, and they. They can strike to the minute by if you pressing a lever or a or a slide or switch or button it will strike the hours uh and then on a different tone a different tone gong it'll strike uh quarters for either fifteen half an hour or forty five mm-hmm. and then it'll strike individual uh dings on a on a kind of a third tone for minutes so you know eleven uh twelve fifty nine would be twelve single dings three-quarter dings, and then 14 more single dings.
0: Now, that seems pretty complicated just in its own. It it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, A repeater is considered a very complicated watch. And and repeaters in in wristwatches can command at the minimum of $100,000 or more. Wow. And so what are some of the other complications for that? Uh, Well, some of these strange complications on uh, the Graves... Uh, would include uh, 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 something like uh, it might also include like a turbillion, which is uh, which is a it's a it's a special function uh, f- to help uh, improve timekeeping accuracy. The, the, throughout the history of watches, uh, compensating for two main things is uh, positional error and uh, temperature error. Mm-hmm. Um, positional error is, is, uh, is, is created w- through the movement of the watch, which clocks don't usually have to account for. Mm-hmm. Um, but watches are carried on the person. So, uh, gravity has whatever position the watch is pending up or, you know, crown of it on a wristwatch crown down when you're holding your arm by your side, gravity tugs on the moving parts of wow. a watch differently. Wow. So, um... Uh, so that gravity, that force of gravity can create discrepancies or, or differences in, in the rate of timekeeping. And you can be off, you know, uh, you can be off minutes a day on watches that are not functioning correctly, uh, in one position as compared to another. Wow. Uh, you know, the, so the general principle is that, uh, you can round out that error, mm-hmm. uh, because you know, when your watch is above your head or below your waist, uh, the the little differences that gravity creates uh, will kind of cancel one another out. Now the turb the, the was created to cancel those uh, f- those forces or differences out while the watch is motionless because they the most important moving part of a watch is called the escapement and the balance mm-hmm. and a turbillion, which is very complicated uh, I think it was created invented by uh, I think it was invented by Breguet. Uh, uh, a, a very famous French watchmaker in the 19th century, I think he he improved on the idea from, or he perfected it. He improved and perfected the idea from, I think, English watchmakers who had kind of started on those tracks. But the turbillion will place the escapement and the balance, which are the complicated moving parts which produce the ticking sound mm-hmm. in a watch. It'll produce those on a little platform that's powered and will rotate, so it 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 has a, a cancelling effect even it, it, when the watch is is at motion or resting because it has right. a, uh, it'll, it'll keep those important parts turning and constantly shifting positions to create a, a cancelling effect
0: that 's amazing yeah
1: wow it is it, it's, and so that 's a very complicated feature and hmm. uh, you know on very expensive uh, modern mechanical wristwatches that 's a a feature that will certainly attract interest um, wow you know, especially among collectors.
0: So let me ask you this. While you're cataloging a fine timepiece, you'd really look for all these complications to list, wouldn't you?
1: Oh, certainly, yeah. Uh, these these complications are, uh, you know, probably we, in a, in a watch auction, if we handle, say, 500 watches, um, pieces with complications would account for probably less than 10% of those. We'd probably have... Wow. You know between twenty five and thirty pieces, uh maybe upwards of fifty if we have a very good auction with complications, wow. including calendars and repeaters uh, i 've handled a few uh, turbillions in in my career, uh, but those are even more complicated as you could probably understand from my explanation of them there mm-hmm. when you have that many moving parts it's it 's a very fine technical process to create something like that.
0: It must be very difficult to work on something like that as well.
1: Yeah, it it there are very few people probably qualified to, to do so uh properly. Yeah. You
0: know? yeah. so let's talk about oh, the history a little bit. Um let's start out with Philippe.
1: Yeah Paddock Philippe it was I have a note here, was founded in eighteen fifty one. Um they uh they of course started with pocket watches. Yeah. Um and uh we can um we could discuss how uh, eventually wristwatches came into vogue i
0: think i know that i think it has something to do with airplanes
1: uh v- very close uh, <laughs> okay. the military
0: military yeah. yeah
1: and uh and so uh so patek philippe produced some very Im- uh, beautiful and important pocket watches uh along with some other you know important uh companies english american mm-hmm. uh swiss uh, mainly in German. Uh, so there was a very vibrant po- pocket watch market, uh, from about 1700. Before that, they were pocket watches were the domain of the very rich. Um, mm. uh, and, uh, they were very complicated and, and rare.
0: A lot of Fusey movements when they go back. that
1: point. Yeah. And they were worn on the outside to signify uh, that you were yeah. a watch owner. Yeah. You know, kind of like, uh, uh, wristwatches are these days. Yeah. Uh, expensive ones. And so, um, these, these, uh, these Swiss and German companies, uh, and English companies were probably at the forefront of the, uh, watch industry from about 1700 to 1850 when the Americans, um, invented, uh, factory production with, uh, with interchangeable parts.
0: Was it, so the factory production started in America?
1: with I think guns and there was another very important industry that started with the interchangeable parts, mainly in Connecticut in uh but clocks mm-hmm. and then watches were also uh fields in which which were early pioneering was done in interchangeable parts. So when the American pocket watch came to market, they would they would take them to the big exhibitions in Europe um, when they perfected the process, like American Waltham Watch Company and Waltham massachusetts the hamilton watch company they're out of i think lancaster pennsylvania they would bring these watches in uh factory produced and of course the especially the english would turn their noses up on anything that wasn't all hand finished and Mm. hand produced but they would uh they would win the competitions and uh they would they would uh they would dominate the 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 uh the foreign competition and they would do so proving it in time trials and the such over in Europe. And then, um, with the factory interchangeable production methods, they were able to undercut their competition. They were producing higher quality goods at a fraction of the cost of an English or a Swiss hand finished watch. The, the Swiss made the adap- uh, the Swiss made the adaptation, uh, in, in time to save their industry. They were on, they were very close to annihilation. They ma- made the, they based on the American methods, they made this the the change in time, and they saved their industry. The English did not, and they they wow. no, they they are uh, after nineteen hundred. They were um, very un, they were very negligible in in, in what they produced. The uh, wristwatches they predate nineteen twenty in use among women. They were called wristlets, oh. and uh, they were they were very effeminate. They were small pocket watches worn on the wrist. Hmm. Uh and they had been around, you know, they'd been in fashion for quite some time, but they they thought it was going to be a fad that was going to, you know, pass even among women.
0: Was this worn like on a ribbon or something?
1: Yeah, or or a band or Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Huh. And uh but it was it was a piece of jewelry for a woman. Yeah. And uh it was considered extremely effeminate for a man to wear a wristlet. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and then uh, world war 1 this is the connection that you brought up with the planes mm-hmm. uh which world war 1 was the first war to use planes mm-hmm. and uh it was also the the first war where wristwatches were of extremely uh they were extremely useful to the troops um because in the trenches where it was cold and wet and uh and cramped it was hard to access a pocket watch mm. and also somewhat dangerous to have to distract yourself from you know from what from watching for bullets or in the trenches to you know take your eyes off off uh your surroundings and dig out your watch so they a quick glance at the wrist watch became uh became the the de facto um uh, process for a man telling time mm-hmm. and, and of course with all the you know the the millions of people killed and the the and the millions of men coming back from the war uh, who found wristwatches more uh, appealing at that point. It was with all these veterans returning. It was no longer effeminate yep. for a man to to wear a wristwatch. Now,
0: are these early watches collectible?
1: Uh, that, you know, t- to to uh, to tell you the truth, the, some of the early watches are collectible, but they're. Uh, it's not like, uh, sometimes the first of something is, uh, very valuable, mm-hmm. like early coins, you know, yeah. like the first strike of a coin, yeah. but wristwatches were, were really just a small adapted pocket watches. Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, so watches w- worn during world war one, aren't really that unusual. They, they, it was just the same old watch with a new use or a new spin on it. So, yeah, um, uh, you know World War 1 pocket watches or wristwatches you know converted from pocket watches are popular you know for some historical value but it wasn't a really major technical I- innovation or something yeah. that that would get the juices of the collector or the, yeah. who's into the strange complications or mechanics of a watch it was kind of just a new spin on a very old old uh you know way of doing things
0: well i want to talk about Rolex next but can you explain what um, the uh, Paddy Philippe company, how it was founded and
1: grew and all that? Uh, yeah, I I think it was, uh, it was founded by, uh, a a gentleman Paddock. And, uh, I think in 1851 and then eight years later, I think in 1859, he, uh, he took out, uh, he he took on a partner, uh, Philippe. And at one point there was a third partner involved, uh, Paddock Philippe and C, C C-I-E, um, and then uh you know they were they were always innovators in in uh in, in mechanics especially mm. uh you know they they've done they, they do they have beautiful cases for their watches pockets and wristwatches but their their focus has always been on the the mechanics um
0: and where were they where where was the was the company based geneva switzerland yeah, okay.
1: yeah. and uh the, the, the you know the i like their slogan um you know they're considered a, a legacy, that, and I their slogan is, "You don't buy a paddock Philippe, you merely take care of it for the next generation." Huh. And so it, it has that kind of quality uh, essence, and even the parts you don't see, where everything is done to the highest quality. Um, and um, you know they had a they started out in 1851, and I uh, you know they they really weren't considered the elite. Uh, watchmaker in the world until the 1890s probably uh but soon once they established that reputation um you know they've held they've held on to it fast and uh you know even with the even with the advance of the americans into the into prominence they they were able to produce a a timepiece that because it was so you know of uh, such high quality and hand finished that the that it was able to find a market of its own, despite the Americans, you know, general appeal to most people who had need for a watch.
0: Yeah, yep. And they're still going strong today.
1: They're still going very strong. Yeah. Um. I was at the Christie's auction a week ago. There were I I, I took some notes here about some of the prices that uh, some of the Patek Philippe uh, pocket watches realized. You know, s- s- something like the um, the reference fifteen eighteen. Which is a triple calendar uh, wristwatch with chronograph that mm-hmm. has a couple of important complications. You know, in a, a precious metal case. Uh, I, I think I thought it was gold, but it might have been platinum. Brought six hundred seventy-five thousand so dollars, and that's a second-hand used, uh, r- you know, wristwatch. So wristwatch
0: th- or parker watch?
1: This was a wristwatch. Uh, now, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, there's uh, the Paddock Platinum World Time. Which was produced in very limited quantities it has it has a dial that will has different uh, you know rings on it to so that you can tell the time in the major metropolitan areas of the world yeah. all through all twenty four yeah. time zones that that brought four million in two thousand and two wow. yeah and you know and those those are incredible investments for you know for watches that we 're probably selling in the you know it, what would be equivalent to maybe 40 or 30 or 40,000 dollars new you know today today so yeah. so, wow. so the Paddock philippe is a um, like like their slogan says it's a good investment and has, there's a legacy value to to the to their name and to their brand
0: do you think that it is a good investment i mean a lot of times people
1: will say in something we don't really know but would you say it is uh, y- yes you know i if i i don't know if it's a good investment when this uh whoever bought this last watch at $675,000 yeah. i don't you know he might have uh, a few years or uh or or so to uh before his before the market can appreciate again but uh you know certainly uh any Patek Philippe if someone had bought something 25 years ago at market price yeah. uh it would have been a very very sound investment
0: Now, condition always plays parts in things like this, so I'm sure it does in watches as well.
1: Oh, yeah, condition can be everything. Um, You know, on a Patek Philippe, um, the dials are very important. You'll have after 40 or 50 years for a wristwatch made in the 50s or 60s. Uh, you'll, you'll just get a little tarnish, or it might get a little moisture under there, and then you can start losing the finish. They kind of like they, they they plate it and they give it like a champagne or a silvered finish, and that can start to tarnish. When people were wearing them, they weren't thinking about collector value so much. They might have it redone so that they could read their watch better. You know that will immediately depreciate the value of a of a good paddock wristwatch by twenty percent. You know.
0: Now, are there? I always ask this question. There must be fakes.
1: Of course. Um, they're, they're, uh, we're, getting, we're getting Rolexes, especially uh, an yeah. uh, uh, often faked brand. Uh, we're getting Rolexes from China now that uh, you can barely tell the difference until you open the cover and, um, and expose the movement, the workings of the watch. I want to tell you something real
0: quickly on this. I stopped in at a place in uh, Long Island just a few years ago. There was this dealer that I sort of knew, but I didn't really know him too well. He had some things for me to look at. And he showed me a, a, a Submariner. Okay. And he had the original uh, receipt, credit card receipt. He had all the papers with the watch. Everything you can imagine was with the watch from a jeweler and everything like that. And he said, um, how many do you want? They're $300 a piece. Oh, wow. Even yeah. with that paperwork. Yeah. So I mean, boy, you have to be careful. Yeah,
1: you have to be very careful these days. And uh, I have a, a good client in San Francisco who's who's been doing it for, who's been trading in, in, in vintage uh, wristwatches and pocket watches for probably forty years. And he works on them, and he can restore very complicated and 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 uh, old antique pieces. He says that he's getting to the point now where some of the th- reproductions that are coming from china that even with the movement exposed under careful inspection uh they can fool him are you serious yeah to that that point it's getting to that point (laughs) wow that's amazing and at that point you ask yourself if they're that high quality uh, reproduction you know when they keep time well that they're producing swiss quality watches Wow. You know,
0: that is amazing. Yeah. Totally amazing. So let's get into Rolex a little bit. I I don't know anything about that company at all.
1: Yeah, well, they're much later. Uh okay. it's a good question because they're much much later. They were actually uh founded in 1905 hmm. in in London. Mm-hmm. At which which we're doing a little research preparing for this talk. I I didn't know that for the first uh 10 or 14 years of their existence they were based in London. They moved to Geneva, Switzerland, and now they're they're, they're the quintessential Swiss brand that I think more people, more of the, you know, your average uh, non-collector associates as a Swiss watch. Mm -hmm. You know, Rolex probably has a little bit more uh, brand recognition, I think, um, among uh, just the general population. Oh, yes. So they they were uh, moved to Geneva in 1919, and so they were created... uh, they they started um, producing pocket watches, which within about fifteen years or twenty years of of the found of the founding of their company, uh, quickly went out of vogue. So they've been a wristwatch company for most of their existence. Have you ever
0: seen a Rolex pocket watch? Do they exist? I mean, do you they? They
1: do. I've handled uh, probably a half dozen in my career. Wow. Do they? Are they collectible? They are collectible, but. Again, Rolex you know started humbly uh, producing good pocket watches, and they they weren 't anything exceptional. there were no major innovations going on uh, and they hadn 't established their reputation early on uh, so they were they were producing you know plain vanilla pocket watches of of good to better quality so Again, you know, if you found something of maybe in the first hundred or so watches that Rolex produced, mm-hmm. might be something important for its historical value. But generically speaking, a Rolex pocket watch is equivalent in value to any above-average pocket watch of that period. You know, which in a gold case might be you know thousand to two thousand dollars. They yeah. the, the, watches at that pocket watches at that point were in transition uh towards wristwatches they pocket watches during the 1860s, 70s and 80s were big kind of massive things that uh, would fill up a whole vest pocket but as as the t- turn of the 20th century they started producing dress watches mm-hmm. which were thinner and about almost about 50% smaller at least half the size of a big you know uh, mid 19th century pocket watch and then eventually that it was it was so slim down and and, and miniaturized that. Eventually, uh, with the World War One and, and the and the veterans returning, they it was an easy transition for for the companies to just start producing wristwatches. And that's what Rolex did. They kind of produced a thin dress pocket watch, and then um, you know by the twenties they were producing wristwatches. And uh, you know they started making their name in uh, wristwatches by producing the first waterproof wristwatch.
0: I was thinking it was the. I may say this wrong. The oyster perpetual. Well,
1: the oyster perpetual. Oyster perpetual. Yeah, that. that um, I thought that's how they really got their. The the their oyster name. perpetual was a uh, was associated. I think had some had had some link to their first waterproof watches. They oh. called them the bubble backs, huh. and they, it was a big bubble back. And they their their simple innovation was to put a rubber gasket, you know, mm-hmm. around the uh the round the case back, which would then screw tight press down on that rubber gasket and create a waterproof seal. Being the first to that market of of waterproof watches was a, a sign of quality and a sign of innovation, and and uh, they already had a good reputation. But but then they became uh, they became quite fashionable, uh, you know. And plus, they were practical for people who could afford to do so. You know, having a waterproof watch, new buying one retail probably saved. You know, a trip to the watchmakers every two or three years because it invariably, you know, m- moisture uh, is the is the nemesis, the ultimate, you know, nemesis of a, a good watch. So, yeah. being able to prevent or preclude moisture from getting in there was very important. And Rolex set the tone for that.
0: Now, I had a um, Accutron for years. I'm familiar with that? It works like yes, a tuning fork. On type.
1: a tuning fork. That was r- that again was uh, the next major innovation in. In watches was uh, the electrical watch, mm-hmm. which the, below, the Boulevard Actron, and uh, which was an American company with some Swiss connections. And uh, Hamilton produced it. Another electric watch uh, called the Hamilton Electric, and uh, th- that had an electric-driven powered movement. Uh, so they there were a lot of tr- problems starting up with uh, electrical watches. There were a lot of issues, and but it was a big technological change. The electrical driven watch market didn't quite hit its stride until the quartz watch was which was invented uh in the late 60s and and was put into mass production by seiko in 1969 the seiko astron and uh so that then that's that's totally changed the playing field for watches uh like the americans did with factory interchangeable parts Mm -hmm. uh the quartz wristwatch will be a better timekeeper, something from Walmart at $15, will be a better timekeeper, a quartz watch, than than any Paddock Fleet mechanical watch produced. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, then we could, we could get into, you know, what's the appeal between mechanical versus quartz. But uh, so... So once that quartz watch was produced in the in the late '60s, the American watch industry was already in decline, uh, and that spelled the death knell of of the American watch sure. industry.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, you can't. There's no real leaders at this point. No. Yeah. yeah,
1: but right through the '50s and '60s, they were producing you know important wrist watches that are very collectible these days, uh, Hamilton and, and Waltham in Illinois. But then the quartz watch you know they they just didn't make the transition like the english didn't with the factory interchangeable yeah. parts the american watch industry did not include itself in the the, the quartz transition yeah. well and they were they were driven out of business more or less They're, some of their names still live on yeah. but the swiss again you know to give credit to the swiss you know, they they quickly, I think the Swiss were the ones who invented the quartz. Mm-hmm. The Japanese and Seiko were the first to mass produce it. And uh, I think, again, that threatened the Swiss watch industry. Mm-hmm. But they were able to, you know, buckle down hard and they made the transition. And now they produce a lot of quartz watches. Um, you've yeah. heard of the Swatch watch. Oh, which, yeah. They're which was popular, popular when I was a child. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Can you just quickly go over a couple of other brands that are up there in quality today?
1: Yeah, th- th- this is kind of interesting. It's kind of this is a good way to t- tie everything in that um there's been a lot of reemergence of older brands that were very popular as as pocket watches uh mm. you know, hundreds of years ago uh Long Long uh, Long and Son in, uh, from Germany, uh, Arnold from England, uh, Moser—I I think he's from Switzerland—all of these were offered in the recent Christie's uh, sure. sale mm-hmm. as modern pocket, uh, modern wristwatches, and they had a, a hundreds years of reputation as, as pocket watches and other timekeeping uh, producers. There's, there's also been kind of a reemergence of the simple dress watch. Uh, some pe- people say it's from the Mad Men series, hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, that 1960s kind of yep. thin wristwatch, um, which is a good sign because uh, the cell phone has become the new pocket watch and, you know, and wristwatch, That's right. That's right. It, wristwatch, you know, after 100 years, uh, pocket watches have... Have been out of style, but with but now they 're built into a phone, so there 's been a reemergence of the pocket watch, and most people depend on their, their cell phone for time these days and mm-hmm. uh, wrist watches and and older pocket watches of course are, are, are there is uh, some question whether they 're going to survive but uh, I think, like I said to, at the beginning of the conversation, it's it's a chance for uh, people to have a little adornment, uh, and there's not many much chance for men to do that fashion wise. Mm-hmm. And there's been a big watch trend. The hip hop scene has yeah. has right. had oversized, you know, <laughs> fifty millimeter flavor flavor. With, yeah, with I don't know any of those. With uh, Diamonds and yeah. and uh, all sorts of jewelry, uh, gold, and they're they're oversized, flamboyant things. But now that there's kind of been a return to uh, some of these uh, brands that have had a long tradition of simplicity and elegance, and um, mm-hmm. you know other good brands are Omega, uh, and uh, I, I wear an Omega watch uh, from the. They, uh, this is a man-on-the-moon version uh, that they uh, selected as uh, the best timekeeper possible for the Apollo missions. Oh, wow. Uh, Breguet, which we mentioned before, is the inventor of the tourbillon. They've had over a 200-year history. Uh, they're, they're making uh, important wristwatches. Uh, Blank Pond, they're Swiss. Longines, Tissot, um, Movado. So there's a lot of good names out there, um, mm-hmm. mainly Swiss, that are producing important watches. Okay.
0: Last question I have for you. Someone handed you $1,000 right now, and they said, go to an auction
1: and buy a really good watch. What would you buy? Um, or under. A yes. Or under. Uh, a second-hand watch mm-hmm. for $1,000. You know, I think I would probably buy an Omega. Omega? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, they, 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 you could find a good one in that range, and uh, they're very high quality. A mechanical watch. You might even find one in a gold case. Uh, you know, like uh, you know, if, if for a pure investment, I would I would probably buy a Rolex or a paddock, but you'd need three or four times that investment yeah. amount. So, an uh, Omega in the range of five hundred to a thousand dollars, you could find a very desirable piece that's very close to the quality of a Rolex or a paddock yeah. for a third the price.
0: Wow, excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much, and hopefully we'll have tomorrow tomorrow will come and go, <laughs> and people will hear this. Uh, it's been a real pleasure.
1: Yeah, I guess that Mayan calendar is a form of a watch, isn't it? Yeah, that's it? right.
0: <laughs> it's it's ending soon. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is Martin Willis with Dan Horan, and we're signing off. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.